Welcome to Fangthology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. We're your hosts, Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. Few films have defined cinematic horror as fully as Nosferatu, the 1922 silent film by German director F. W. Murnau. Widely believed to be the first ever vampire movie, or at least the earliest surviving example of one, Its influence can be found looming overhead in the genre in the century that followed its release. Its imagery remains iconic, and the impact it had on vampire mythos as a whole is indelible. Today, Nosferatu is a staple of horror-themed festivals, film studies departments, and any movie that needs to show clips of a horror film without worry about pesky copyright fees. And yet, it's a miracle that Nosferatu is even with us today, not only because the vast majority of silent cinema is missing or presumed destroyed, but because efforts were made to actively erase it from history. A major legal battle bankrupted the company that distributed Nosferatu and ordered that all existing prints of the film be burned due to copyright infringement. By all rights, Nosferatu should not exist in 2021, but now you can find multiple free-to-view versions on YouTube in less than five seconds. The story of Nosferatu is one of legal strife and perhaps the only widely agreed upon case of plagiarism as a beloved work of art. Much has been written about the socio-political influences and impact of the German Expressionist movement on the country's art and culture. This was movement in cinema's earliest incarnation where Hollywood sorely lagged behind its European counterparts. While the heyday of Expressionism as the dominant subgenre was brief, its legacy spread far and wide across film of the world in ensuing decades, influencing everything from Alfred Hitchcock to Tim Burton, The Night of the Hunter to Blade Runner and beyond. The aim was to reject full-on realism in favour of heightened and distorted displays of emotion and reality. Sets were created to look slanted, foreboding and geometrically unreal. Actors like Conrad Veidt embraced dramatic makeup and grotesque expressions. The plots often dealt with themes of madness, betrayal, trauma and fear of the unknown, all possibly influenced by that generation's experiences in the First World War. Frederick Wilhelm Murnau started making films in 1919, most of which are either lost or only survive in minor fragments, unfortunately. He established his own studio with Conrad Veidt and began working on a series of horror titles. 1920s The Hunchback and the Dancer centred on the tale of a hideous hunchback who has poisoned his former lover so that every man she kisses will die. That same year, he released The Head of Yanis an unauthorised adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Veidt played the dual lead roles while his butler was played by future Dracula, Bela Lugosi. Both films are considered lost, although scripts and production notes of The Head of Yanis still exist. It's not hard to see what would have drawn Murnau to Dracula. He had expressed interest in themes of duality and the primal darkness lurking underneath the skin of humanity for years. Aside from his associations with expressionism, Murnau worked frequently in other cinematic subgenres known as Kammerspielfilm, where expressionism favoured the distorted and the heightened. Kammerspielfilm was the 1920s Germany equivalent of the kitchen sink drama, focusing on realistic stories of life in lower classes. 
After Nosferatu, he made films like 1926's Faust, a dreamlike tale of the legend that is widely considered to be one of the true masterpieces of German Expressionism. He followed that up with Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, his Hollywood debut and the winner of an Oscar for Best Unique and Artistic Picture, an award they, funnily enough, don't give out anymore. He made his last film in 1931, the same year he died from injuries relating to a car crash. He was 42. In 2015, it was reported that Murnau's embalmed head had been stolen from his grave in Stansdorf, Germany. Nosferatu was set to be the debut title of Prana Film, the film studio founded in 1921 by Enrico Diekmann and Alban Grau. The latter was an artist and occultist, and member of the magical order known as Fraternitas Saturni. He certainly played up his supernatural adjacent status for the press and throughout the development of Nosferatu. Grau described how he had been deeply affected by his service in the German army during the First World War, an atrocity he described as being, quote, a cosmic vampire. He even claimed that he met a suburban farmer who claimed his father had been a vampire, vanquished by a stake through the heart. Film historian David Carrot would later describe Grau's claims as, quote, certainly outright bullshit, a story to sell movie tickets, end quote. Nevertheless, these details were repeatedly cited as his inspiration for wanting to make a vampire film. As with German Expressionism as a whole, Nosferatu was seen as the twisted lens for a nation to look back upon its dark past. Grau seemed to be a major creative force behind the scenes for Nosferatu. On top of providing costume and production design for the film, he is often credited with being the force behind Nosferatu being written in the first place. David Carrot would later claim that, quote, Grau spent more on promoting Nosferatu than he spent to make it. Dickmann und Grau gave Henrik Galin, an actor, director and screenwriter who created the 1915 lost silent horror film The Golem, the task of writing Nosferatu. He seemed to be the right fit for the material given his prior experience in supernatural cinema and German expressionist storytelling. Galeen made the choice to move the setting of the town from then-contemporary England to Germany of the 1830s, specifically the harbour town of Visborg. He also brought the plague themes to the forefront of the story. When Count Orlok's ship arrives in town, a swarm of rats infects Visborg with the plague. This addition was timely in the early 1920s, as Germany had suffered greatly from the epidemic of Spanish flu that ultimately killed more civilians than the First World War. Orlok himself is more rat-like in appearance than what modern audiences expect from a vampire. This reinforces the idea of the vampire as the other, a wholly inhuman creature that should be feared and destroyed. This aesthetic and thematic direction has been criticised for decades as being a potentially anti-Semitic dog whistle. Orlok, with his long hooked nose, claw-like fingernails and sharp teeth, is eerily similar to the images found in anti-Jewish propaganda from the late 1910s and early 1920s. Orlok spreads infection, invades a small town, and plans to dominate it partly through the acquisition of property. Much of this is rooted in the plagiarised source material, but the shift in location was accused of preying on the fears and anxieties of the German public at the time. Writer Tony Magistral wrote that the film's depiction of an, quote, invasion of the German homeland by an outside force, poses disquieting parallels to the anti-Semitic atmosphere festering in Northern Europe in 1922. Other academics have pushed back against this, noting that F.W. Murnau had many Jewish friends and associates during his lifetime. 
magistrate also wrote that Murnau, being a gay man in 1920s Germany, would have been, quote, presumably more sensitive to the persecution of a subgroup inside the larger German society, and that the anti-Semitic aspects of Nosferatu were unlikely to have been a conscious decision on his part. Regardless of intent, however, this image is one that has prevailed for decades long after Nosferatu's production. For the lead role, Murnau cast the stage actor Friedrich Gustav Maximilian Schreck, professionally known as Max Schreck. A prolific theatre star, Schreck trained at the State's Theatre of Berlin and had engagements throughout Europe. For a period, he was part of the company of Max Reinhardt, one of the most prominent directors of German-language theatre in the early 20th century. Nosferatu was not Schreck's first film. He had credits in titles such as The Mayor of Zalmena and The Story of Christine von Herr. Neither of these, however, were horror, so Nosferatu was a first for him in that aspect. Little is known about how he came to be involved in the film or his process in playing Count Orlog. Physically, however, he was the perfect fit. Standing at six foot three inches tall, Schreck was a foreboding figure with a stern appearance. Not that you would ever notice that under all that makeup. His tall and sturdy form was also padded out to include a hunchback transforming the way he walked. Truly, he was unrecognisable as Count Orlok to those who were familiar with him. Filming for Nosferatu began in July 1921, with the northern German town of Wismar standing in for this fictional setting of Visborg. The exteriors of the film set in Transylvania were actually shot in location in northern Slovakia, while interiors were filmed at studios in Berlin. Like many movies of the time, shooting was quick, off over cost reasons that there was only one camera available. Murnau carefully followed the instructions on camera positioning, lighting and production details left in Gillian's screenplay, but he also rewrote at least 12 pages of the thing himself. The final scene, wherein Armina stands and Ellen sacrifices herself and Orlok dies by the rising of the sun, was planned out to the smallest detail. Murnau used sketches to correspond to each scene and used a metronome to control the pace of the acting. The end result is languid yet deeply affecting, a finale that feels in line with the style of German expressionism, yet utterly refreshing in its own right. A lavish premiere for Nosferatu was held a mere eight months after shooting commenced, on March 4th, 1922, at the Berlin Zoo. The publicity machine went hard on selling the film as the ultimate terror. Elite guests dressed in costume for the premiere, and Albin Grau wrote an accompanying essay on vampirism for the programme. Nosferatu who cannot die. A million fancies strike you when you hear the name Nosferatu. Nosferatu does not die. What do you expect of the first showing of this great work? Aren't you afraid? Men must die. But legend has it that a vampire, Nosferatu, the undead, lives on men's blood. You want to see a symphony of horror? You may expect more. Be careful, Nosferatu is not just fun, not something to be taken lightly. Once more, beware. Critics were favourable towards the film, and it seemed to have the makings of a hit. Pranafilm just had a couple of issues that it needed to deal with first, one of which came in the form of Bram Stoker's widow. Florence Belko married Bram Stoker in 1878 and stayed married to him for 34 years, until the author's death in 1912. Her previous paramour had been none other than Oscar Wilde, who remained a friend after she married Stoker. As a family, the Stokers lived in London, where he held the position of business manager of Henry Irving's Lyceum Theatre for 27 years. They had one child together named Irving. By all accounts, they were a loving pair. 
Dracula was not a bestseller upon release, and it never made its author much money. In the last year of his life, he had to petition for a compassionate grant from the Royal Literary Fund to make ends meet. After his death, Florence had to auction off his notes and outline of the novel for what amounted to very little profit. As his widow and the executor of his estate, Florence Stoker fought to keep her grip on the one thing that could potentially offer some sort of financial freedom. Still, Dracula didn't bring in the big bucks. Florence saw little in the way of royalties. When she did sell some of her husband's notes at auction, they only made a few pounds. She had never given official permission to anyone to adapt Dracula, much less F.W. Murnau. Film was still in its advent and the industry was finding its feet. Literary adaptations were common, but not considered particularly prestigious. Certainly, it wasn't one of international power. It's not hard to see why Prana Film wouldn't think they need to worry about some widow living in London. Indeed, Florence Stoker was unaware of Nosferatu's existence until she received an anonymous letter from Berlin informing her of the plagiarism. The letter included the program for the major screening of the film that had taken place in the Berlin Zoological Garden. The film was described in the handbill as, quote, freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Even if they hadn't bothered with the citation, it would have been tough for the filmmakers to deny their sources. Aside from the changed names, the similarities to Stoker's Dracula are impossible to write off as a mere coincidence. Florence Stoker was, to put it mildly, pissed off by this news. There she was, broke and struggling to survive on a pittance, with nothing to her name but her husband's low-selling novels, and now she'd discovered that someone was banking on Bram's work without her permission. Clearly, the law would be on her side in this blatant case of copyright infringement. Yet Stoker didn't have the financial means to sue. She turned to the British Incorporated Society of Authors for support. Initially, they were hesitant to help her, but eventually relented, possibly because Florence still had some strong connections from her husband with various members. Prana wasn't in the best financial position even before Stoker's lawsuit reared its ugly head. The press in Germany were scathing in their inquiries into Prana's disappearing funds. The company had declared bankruptcy shortly after the release of Nosferatu, but that did little to dispel Florence, especially once she got wind that screenings of the movie were still happening across Eastern Europe. Stoker's lawsuit dragged on for a year, complicated by issues regarding who was ultimately responsible for the copyright infringement, and whether the exchange rate from marks to pounds would impact the compensation paid. The Society of Offers did not appreciate any of this and felt exasperation that Florence Stoker was putting them through so much when she wasn't even a fully paid up member of their group. In 1923, they concluded that it would not be worth their time or resources to continue the legal battle, especially since, quote, it is most probable that the Prana Film Company, judging from their present methods, would refuse to pay any monies whatever, even if judgment was secured against them, and would use every possible legal method to avoid such payment. Florence was understandably mad, and she refused to give in. This wasn't just about her, it was about fairness and the law and the right of every creator to have control over their own work. She wielded her connections and kicked up a fuss to the point where the Society of Offers knew they couldn't fully back down. It would have been a PR nightmare for them to reject Bram Stoker's widow in her hour of need. Eventually, a German court ruled against Prana. Florence Stoker asked for a payment of £5,000 from the receivers. They appealed, but once again, a year later, in 1925, the court ruled in Stoker's favour. By now, she knew there was little to no chance of her receiving the financial compensation she was due. 
so she chose to fight for the destruction of all copies of Nosferatu. She was, at the time, in the process of selling Dracula stage rights for theatrical production, and knew that the continuing presence of Nosferatu in any shape, way or form in the public consciousness would hinder that. On July 20th, after Prana dropped their last appeal, all copies of Nosferatu were ordered destroyed. A lot of academics tend to view Florence Stoker's actions negatively, which seems unfair to her. In the context of the modern day, wherein the vast majority of silent cinema is missing or was accidentally destroyed, it feels especially shocking to consider that someone went through a years-long legal battle to actively erase a necessary part of film history from existence. From her perspective, she had been wronged, and it must have been galling to see someone else claim credit for her husband's work and receive glowing critical acclaim, the likes of which Bram never had during his lifetime. She was a single mother with basically no income, and the one means she had to support herself and her son was being flagrantly ripped off by people who acted with impunity. Nosferatu is an undisputed piece of art, and we're thankful it exists, but Florence Stoker's actions weren't those of a furious censor as she is often painted. It's unfortunate for her that she is perhaps the only example in modern history of artists and scholars rooting for the plagiarist. Of course, in the end, Nosferatu survived. One way Stoker managed to hold on to control of Dracula and profit from it was through the theatrical rights. Eventually, she granted the rights to a stage version of Dracula to Hamilton Dean, an actor-turned-writer-producer who had once been a neighbour of hers in Dublin. Dean had been a member of the company of Henry Irving, the owner of the Lyceum Theatre who Bram Stoker worked for for many years. After leaving to found his own acting troupe in the 1920s, Dean began working on a theatrical take on his old friend's most famous novel. A year later, he got permission from Florence to do so. This made him the first person to write an authorised adaptation of Dracula. That play was critically slammed when it premiered on the 15th of May, 1924, but audiences practically devoured it. They loved the lascivious nature of the story and moments of shocking violence, although most of the latter had been cut out due to the censorship demands of the Lord Chamberlain, who had to approve every production that premiered in London. In many ways, Dean's adaptation of Dracula is the anti-Nosferatu. The changes it made are often oppositional to Murnau's story, but they're also substantially different from Stoker's source material. Dracula is not quite the monstrous being that Count Orlok is in Osferatu, but he's certainly not the debonair gentleman that the play introduced. It's often overlooked how unseemly and unattractive the Count is in his original form. He's described as having a long moustache, bad breath, and being devoid of sensual allure. On stage, the image of Dracula we now associate as the default was born, complete with the high-collared cape. When Hollywood came a-knocking for its own Dracula film, Universal went more with Dean's play than Stoker novel, and kept that image of the seductive aristocrat whose otherness seemed both alluring and terrifying. They even brought along one of the actors who played the lead role on stage, a Hungarian character actor by the name of Bela Lugosi. His story deserves its own episode. In 1979, Nosferatu was remade by the iconoclastic German director and full-time meme Werner Herzog. He was a huge fan of Murnau's film and considered it to be the greatest movie ever made in Germany up until that point in time. When they kept the bare bones of Murnau's film for his version, he changed the characters' names back to their original ones in Dracula, although this is yet another version where Lucy and Mina's roles are basically swapped. 
He also made the film in both German and English. Herzog was able to do this because both the Murnau film and the Stoker novel were in the public domain by the time he started working on the script. Sorry, Florence Stoker. Klaus Kinski, the notorious actor and collaborator slash enemy of Herzog, played the vampire while Isabel Jani and Bruno Ganz played the Harkers. The setting is still Germany, reinforcing the image of Nosferatu as a very national vampire story. The theme of vampirism as a plague is at the forefront here, particularly with the rats. When the town becomes infested with them, the locals immediately abandon civilised life, believing they are doomed to die in the most painful manner possible. Only Lucy knows that the plague is not the real threat, but nobody will listen to her. She tries to plead with the townspeople, but they have thrown their possessions into the streets and revel among the rats, waiting for their doom. The plague! The plague! What are you doing here? I must go to the town council. It's dissolved. It exists no more. Then I have to see the mayor. He's dead. Go home as quick as you can. I know the reason for all this evil. I know the reason for all this. Why don't you listen? I know the reason. As Herzog himself said, Nosferatu is not a monster, but an ambivalent, masterful force of change. When the plague threatens, people throw their property onto the streets. They discard their bourgeois trappings. A re-evaluation of life and its meaning takes place. Herzog was actually heavily criticised for the inhumane way he treated the thousands of rats used during their production. He insisted that the white ones be dyed grey, a process that killed most of them, and due to poor travelling conditions, many of them started to eat one another on the journey to the set. Yeah. The key difference with Herzog's Nosferatu is that his count is a far more sympathetic creature. He talks frequently about the pain of his loneliness and the ennui of immortality. He is a man without free will, stuck in a liminal space with no chance of escape. He kills, but it causes him immense pain, and he will never be able to live at peace or among humans. And the pain doesn't stop when he actually dies, for Jonathan is shown to have been infected by the vampiric plague in his place, and he has Dr. Van Helsing charged with the Count's murder. Jonathan then states that he has much to do and is last seen riding away on horseback, ready to take over Dracula's mantle. Evil shall always reign supreme. For many decades, the production of Nosferatu felt like a strange sort of mystery, one made all the more foreboding by its near-total absence from the cultural consciousness. There was little contemporary reporting of the shoot, and to English-speaking audiences, figures like Max Schreck were total mysteries. Murnau had a Hollywood career after Nosferatu, but no one else did. By the time prints of the film were recovered, most of the main participants of the production had passed away. The strangeness of the film, both upon its release and as a wide-reaching cinematic legend, became easy to mythologize. In 2000, Nicolas Cage co-produced the film Shadow of the Vampire, a metafictional horror take on the production of Nosferatu, which reimagined F.W. Murnau as a maniacal auteur who hires a real vampire for the sake of accuracy, despite the murderous havoc he wreaks upon cast and crew. Shadow of the Vampire was not the first time that the idea of Max Schreck being a real vampire was brought up. In the 1953 book Le Surrealisme au Cinema, 
Filmmaker and writer Ado Kairu said, In the role of the vampire, the credits name the musical actor Max Schreck, but it is well known that this attribution is a deliberate cover-up. Who hides behind that character of Nosferatu? Maybe Nosferatu himself. This urban myth forms the jumping-off point for Mehege and screenwriter Stephen Katz to examine the early days of cinema and the almost magical status that filmmaking had in its infancy. Viewed as a novelty with no artistic merit, and certainly nothing so worthy as theatre, the camera that Murnau wields is like a weapon. His lead actress claims that the stage gives life, whereas his device merely takes it. Murnau is so desperate to bring realism to his movie that a renowned stage actor playing a vampire simply won't do. He's willing to let countless people die for his goal. A lot of key details were changed to suit Shadow of the Vampire's thematic aims, alongside the addition of a real vampire. Greta Schroeder, the actress who plays Ellen, was portrayed as a famous actress with diva tendencies, but in reality she was little known when she starred Nosferatu. She also, shock horror, wasn't killed by a vampire. She actually worked well into the 1950s, although sporadically. As played by John Malkovich, Murnau is shown to be a mercurial perfectionist who prizes his film above all else, even if it means allowing a vampire to eat most of his cast and crew. It's the classic over-demanding director trope at play, and it fits with the film's metaphor of cinema as its own kind of vampirism, taking the lives of others for self-preservation. That image of the actor going method has also aged remarkably well in the time of people like Jared Leto and Leonardo DiCaprio putting themselves and colleagues through hell for their performances. The real Murnau, however, was celebrated for his sensitivity and discipline as a filmmaker. Actors liked him, he finished on time, and there's no evidence to suggest that he thought Nosferatu, of all his films, would be his undisputed masterpiece worthy of such cruelty. Really, the Nosferatu director who would have earned such a portrayal is Werner Herzog. One wonders what a sequel to Shadow of the Vampire would have looked like if it had shown Murnau realising his magnum opus was to be destroyed. Only one print of Nosferatu survived the ruling to destroy the film. Like any good vampire, it couldn't be kept down. The movie made its way to the US, where Dracula was already in the public domain, and as such could not face the same legal scrutiny it did in Europe. It is from that one print that every copy of the film existing today was made, from remastered DVD releases to YouTube rips. Now the film will never be erased from history. Its status as a classic is secured. Nowadays, Nosferatu is simply accepted as another adaptation of Dracula, the first real one of the big screen, and the film that paved the way for the entire genre as well as every other adaptation that followed. The face of vampire fiction would be very different without Nosferatu. This is the first film where the vampire is killed by sunlight, something that is now as crucial a part of vampire and Dracula lore as the bloodsucking. Moreover, what has endured about Nosferatu is its imagery. That iconic shot of Orlok creeping up the stairs and his shadow elongating across the walls has been homage parodies and ripped off by countless films, TV series, and random bites of pop culture. When we think of monstrous vampires, Orlok is still the face that comes to mind. Such as In the World of Darkness, a tabletop role-playing game universe that includes Vampire the Masquerade. In Vampire, the Nosferatu are one of the primary clans, character classes that the character can choose from. 
cursed by the embrace to wear their inhumanity on their face. The archetypal Nosferatu heavily resembles Count Orlok with the pointed ears and rat-like features. Most lurk in the sewers and labyrinths beneath cities with rats and other Nosferatu for company. There, they are seekers of information and masters of the vampire computer network appropriately named ShrekNet. Or as Bertram Tung, a Nosferatu NPC from the video game Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines would put it, The Nosferatu are damn good at what we do. No one even argues that. If you need to know, if you want it found, you come to us. We're indispensable. Not a bad place to be in the afterlife. Meanwhile, in the 2014 mockumentary, What We Do in the Shadows, each of the four vampires living in a flat in Wellington, New Zealand, reference a different famous movie vampire. 8,000-year-old Peter is a full Count Orlok replica, draped in black robes and the shadows of the basement he calls home. His speech is more growls and other animalistic noises, which his flatmates are able to understand, and coupled with gestures and limited facial expressions. This mostly silent communication appears to be unique to the ancient Peter, however, as the television spin-off, Wellington Paranormal, features another Orlokian vampire. Alexander is interviewed in a graveyard after the arrest of another, no less than Nick from the film, for the theft of blood from a blood bank, something that horrifies the apparently only externally monstrous Alexander. It's fine to, uh, to take the blood from a human person. That's all fair game. But stealing from a hospital? No way. Uh, they need that for emergencies. And Nosferatu lingers in 2021. Talk of a remake has swirled for years, with The Witch and the Lighthouse director Robert Eggers publicly attached for several years. Doug Jones was rumoured to be in the lead role for that. But the film has since been put on hold. Vampire films are back in business right now. There are multiple Dracula and Dracula-adjacent movies in the works, so Nobby's The Rise of Nosferatu gets its own remake at some point. Nowadays, many of the online versions of Nosferatu use the Dracula character names in their super titles, but Count Orlok has long taken on a life of his own. His identity is decidedly independent from that of his plagiarised source material, and the influence he has wielded is to find the Draculas who follow. It's a fitting end to a story that despite all that was thrown its way, remains immortal. Thanks for listening to Fangphology. This episode was written and performed by Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova, and edited by Catherine Slavova. Please like, share and review us whatever you subscribe to podcasts. More information and links to our research can be found on our website, fangphology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, which also go by the name Fangphology. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon for another episode.